You know, there are phrases you can say as a pastor that are completely normal around our offices, but if you were to say them in other contexts, you might uh, have people concerned. For example, if Tim came to my office, knocked on the door and said, hey, Ronald, I just want to let you know I'm heading to the hospital. If you heard that in your offices, you might go, wait, uh, wait, wait a second. You are heading to the hospital? No, no, no. I'm, I am going to see someone at the hospital. It's not for me. I am going for someone else. Another example would be, hey, just to let you know, I'm off to prison. <laughs> You're going to prison? No, no, no. They're going to let me out again. Um, I'm going to see someone in the... We're visiting, all right? That's what's going on. Another one is, uh, all right, tonight I've got marriage counseling, heading out early. Uh, marriage counseling? What's, uh, what's going on? I thought, thought everything was cool. Like, no, 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 everything's fine with me. It's for the Smiths. Oh, no, what's wrong with the Smiths? Like, nothing. It's pre-marital counseling, all right? Marriage counseling. It's going to be fine. Everyone's okay. Uh, just as frequent is, hey, just to let you know, I'm heading off to the funeral. Now, this was something that I was very new to when I started out in ministry, I was almost fresh out of college when I took on my first full-time job as a youth pastor. And my, my boss came to my office, knocked on my door, and said, Hey, Ronald, I want to let you know one of your students had a grandparent pass away. You need to go to the funeral home, pray with them, and just you know, let them know that you're thinking of them and, and make that visit. Yes, sir. I, I am on board. So I got in my car. I drove to the funeral home. I went over and I found my student, gave him a hug, told him I was sorry, prayed for them, and looked to my left. Now, this was my very first time being in a funeral home because up until this point in my life, I had not had anyone, uh, close family or close friends, pass away. So I was unexperienced and did not know what a visitation was. But now I understood that a visitation was where you go, you see the family, and you observe the deceased. I walk over to a deacon who uh, I've become fast friends with this church and just said, Mr. Benny, I would like to let you know I have never been to a funeral before in my life. I've never been to visitation before in my life. And that's the first dead body I've ever seen. He said, it's okay, Ronald. I actually used to own this funeral home. I will walk you through the process. I'm like, okay, this is good. All right, I can handle this. Now, since then, I have had several funerals. My father's passed away, my grandfather, my grandmother's, uh, and we've, we've been through the process. But one of the things that is really strange to me and still remains strange is buying and choosing the casket, I always say strange things when we do this, like we're looking around and we're going, you know what, uh, not the chrome purple one. Uh, no, dad wouldn't have liked that. Dad liked to work with wood, so let's get the wooden one. Like, I don't, I, I don't know. And we, we say odd things like, well, they, they just really liked the color blue, so let's buy them a blue casket. It's a, it's a very strange thing that we do. And it's going to get to the heart of what we're talking about this morning. If you remember, we're doing a series in Luke. We're studying Luke's gospel. We're trying to figure out uh, Luke's accounts of the story of Jesus. And if you remember from last week when we were looking in Luke 11, Jesus was casting out demons. And he was being accused of casting out demons by the power of demons. 
And then he told the crowd, he rebuked them, and he said, this crowd, this generation will receive no other sign other than the sign of Jonah. Now, maybe you don't think that makes a very exciting dinner guest, but there was a Pharisee there who, who did. And so if you'll look with me at verse 37, we're going to see what turns out to be a very awkward dinner party. Verse 37. As he, Jesus, was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw this, he was amazed that he did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and evil. Fools! Didn't he who made the outside make the inside too? But give from what's within to the poor, and then everything is clean for you. Now, if you think the Pharisee is regretting inviting Jesus over for dinner, just wait till Jesus gets going, all right? The Pharisee points out that Jesus did not perform a ritual hand-washing. But what the Pharisee has in mind isn't exactly hygiene. It's a show. The Pharisees developed a ritual to where they would wash their hands in a unique, specific way to show that if there was something unclean on their hands before they went and they had supper or had dinner, they would remove it from their hands before they ate. And it was a ritual. And what Jesus is telling the Pharisee is you are focused on the outside. You are focused on the appearance and not what's going on on the inside. The Pharisee is so concerned with the appearance of spiritual maturity that he neglects inside spiritual growth. And we have a word for this, and it's called hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when we do things for the purpose of looking holy or looking spiritual when on the inside we are as dead as a body in a casket. Jesus goes on to give the Pharisee three woes, which are basically three accusations onto how he, as a Pharisee, is being a hypocritical religious leader. Verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees! You give a tenth of mint, rue, and every kind of herb, and you bypass justice and love for God. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. The first bit of religious hypocrisy that Jesus accuses the Pharisee of is doing something that takes time, takes effort, looks good, but would then prevent him from spending his time doing more important things like pursuing love and justice. The Old Testament law provided for the priests and Levites. If you remember, when Israel was split up into sections, the Levites were the one tribe who did not get any land. It's because the Levites' sole job was to maintain the tabernacle, which would then become the temple. And because they had no land, they could not raise their own crops. They could not produce their own livestock. And so what the nation of Israel did is they tithed these things. They would go to the temple. They would go to the tabernacle. And it was through these that the Levites were able to maintain not only their own lives, but also the temple as well. And when you went and did this, you would go and you would bring these sacrifices. You would bring these gifts and offerings to the temple. Now, as a dad of three daughters, 
It's my job to make lunches, right? And we make them in bulk, right? I make all the lunches for the week on Sundays. And sometimes my head just gets spinning when it comes to, is this a sandwich bag job or is this a snack bag job? And I went to Walmart the other day. Normally, the sandwich bags are square, the snack bags are rectangular, and now they're both squares, and my head is just blown, all right? I have, today's going to be rough putting the lunches together. You can imagine the Pharisee walking through his spice rack and pulling out one-tenth of a spice, putting it back and packaging it up neatly in a snack or sandwich bag, putting it over to the side, and then getting over here and packaging it up and getting it over here and packaging it up. It looks good. When he shows up to the temple, he's going to have these spices to offer up to the priests. When in reality, if he would just tithe like it we're told in the Old Testament, those priests could take what they had gotten, sell them, and buy their own spices. And then the Pharisee would have the time to pursue more important things, like love and justice. Jesus is saying that you are spending so much time doing things that will look good, that you are neglecting to do the more important things. Verse 43, Jesus continues and he says, Woe to you Pharisees! You love the front seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Now Jesus here isn't saying that if you happen to be sitting on the front row this Sunday morning, you are a religious hypocrite, all right? And I hope that's not the case because normally I sit on the front row right over there, right? What Jesus is saying is the Pharisee loves the front row. You can imagine him walking in 15 minutes late to the synagogue. I'm like that person's doing right now. Don't look back there. All right. You can imagine them walking in late and instead of finding a seat in the back and kind of excusing yourself, slowly making your way down the middle aisle, making sure that everyone sees you showed up at the synagogue today. Jesus is saying it's not where you sit that's the problem. It's the fact that you love to be seen being spiritual. This Pharisee's not late because he's doing extra devotions at home. He wants people to notice he showed up. Verse 44. Woe to you. You are like unmarked graves. The people who walk over them don't know it. The final woe to the Pharisee is the most offensive to him. He's been going to the extreme to follow the letter of the law when he doesn't realize he's having the effect of breaking the law. Numbers 19 gave the nation of Israel very clear instructions on how they ought to treat their dead and their graves. And we're told that if someone were to touch a dead body, helping to prepare them, that they would become ceremoniously unclean which means they could no longer take part in sanctuary offerings or tabernacle worship, and that they were to remain away for seven days. We're told that even if you were to walk over a grave, it would have the same effect. So graves would be clearly marked so that you would not mistakenly walk over it and become unclean. Jesus says this Pharisee is an unmarked grave. People don't know that as they are interacting with this Pharisee that they are becoming unclean because they are looking at the Pharisee, how he lives his life, and seeing that he is only concerned with the outside appearance of spirituality. And because of that reason, 
he is making the people he comes into contact with unclean. This is what we can do today. We so often focus on externals. We want to look spiritual. We want to look like we're doing things correctly. And I got to tell you, I had some internal dialogue and some like wandering over this week over whether or not I should shave my beard before I came and I preached Student Ministry Sunday. Okay, yeah, okay. Now here's the reason I did not. First, my wife likes it. Second, my boss is cool with it. And third, if I did, I know that all y'all would talk about was the middle school pastor finally found his razor. Good job, man. <laughs> Externals. We focus on this. As a culture, this is what we do. Think about the social media platforms right now that are big. They are photo-driven. We like photos that are pleasing to the eyes. We praise a well-decorated house and manicured lawn. But how often do we praise a quiet and gentle spirit? How often do we praise an act of love or justice that just happened to go unfilmed this time? This is something that we struggle with. And it's what we struggle when it comes to people, too. Tattoos or difference in skin tone or the clothes that somebody wears doesn't tell you a whole lot about their heart. The next time you see somebody who looks like they are from a different planet than you are, I want you to stop and think, do I want this person to judge me by my external appearance or would I rather them see my heart? The next time that you are going to do something, I want you to think about, is this something that I am doing so that I can be seen being spiritual? Do I want people to recognize that I am paying for the lunch of the person in front of me so that they would think I'm a good Christian? Or is this something my heart wants to do? I love working with students. There's so much change that happens in student ministry. The seniors who we'll recognize a little later on in the service, they were my first round of all-year eighth graders, right? And all of them have grown at least three feet in the time that I have gotten a chance to know them. Some of them are even taller and bigger than I am, and it's terrifying. I'll just let you know. But what I love about student ministry is I get a chance to see these students' hearts. We have small groups throughout the year. I get to watch these students invite their friends to small group. I get to watch them introduce their friends to Jesus and to the Bible. I get to watch them pray over their friends, to share their joys, to share their hardships, to encourage one another. I get to watch students give up weeks of their summer so that they can volunteer for VBS as crew guides or so they can go on us with a mission trip, the middle school ministry to Clinton, Mississippi, the high school ministry to Washington, D.C., I get to watch these students' hearts. 
And sometimes it's hard to see their hearts, especially if you walk into the middle school room on a Sunday morning, right? See a lot of sixth graders that are very short running around. It's okay, I told you, they're going to grow three feet, all right? You're going to see some eighth graders who are getting a little bit more confident. You're going to see all kinds of middle school shenanigans, I promise you. But their hearts are what they are concerned about, what is going on on the inside. And I pray that would be the same for us as well. Look, these students may look different than you. Some of them have blue hair. Some of them have tattoos that you might find questionable or piercings that you go, "Eh, really, a fourth one in the ear? All right. But these students have hearts for God. Student ministry isn't all about games. Sometimes we do play some. You ever played the game Sardines? It's a lot of fun, all right? It's reverse hide-and-seek, right? Instead of everyone going out to hide, one person goes to hide, and everyone goes to find them. And the trick with sardines is once you find that person, you must hide with them as well. And so eventually you realize you are the only person looking for the sardines. Some buddies and I were playing this game in college, and this really cool three-story house. It was getting dark, so it was making it really hard to see and everything. And I know what you're thinking. Ronald, you need better hobbies in college. Um, it was for retreat. There was purpose to it. So we were actually all kind of smushed into this closet for a little bit. And we began to talk about this one girl who had come with us on this retreat. And she was a little different. She didn't quite fit in with the group. And we were discussing that she was different. It didn't quite fit in. And a thought occurred to me, and I said it out loud. I said, wouldn't it be awkward if she was in here with us? To which she replied, I am in here. (laughs) That game was over fast. It was a very awkward encounter. We really try not to be impolite to people, to their faces. But Jesus doesn't seem to care all that much. As Jesus is going through this conversation, somebody pipes up. Verse 45, one of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. Look, it's not like Jesus was unaware of who was listening in in the conversation. He's the Son of God, all right? But the scribe says, Hey, Jesus, you're letting that guy have it left and right, and as you do so, you're insulting me. And Jesus goes, I'm really glad you brought you up. Let's talk about you for a minute. Verse 46. Then he said, Woe also to you experts in the law. You load people with burdens that are hard to carry, and yet you yourselves don't touch these burdens with one of your fingers. Jesus is saying, You know your law, but you're not living your law. The scribe may be preaching, but instead of practicing what he preached, he only preached, and he never practiced. He goes on to say, Woe to you! You build tombs for the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Therefore, your witnesses that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their monuments." 
Because of this, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, so that this generation may be held responsible for the blood of all prophets shed since the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible. It's important to know about the prophets in the Old Testament. Most of the time when God sent them to the nations of Israel or Judah, the message wasn't, you guys are doing exactly what you should be doing right now. Keep it up. God is so pleased with you right now. Most of the time, that was not the message. Some of the time, the message was, hang on. Trust God. Yes, it's hard right now, but trust God and just hang on. Most of the time, however, the message was repent for you are running away from God and he is so angry right now. Now you can imagine if somebody were to come with the message of, hey, you're doing great, but he might get a good reception. And if someone comes with the message of just hang on, they might get the kind of golf clap reception like, we guess this is okay to hear, this is all right. But most of the time when the prophets came with the repent, you are turning away from God, stop worshiping these foreign idols, return to God, most of the time they were killed. And Jesus mentioned Zechariah. He's the last prophet in the Hebrew Bible. And we're told that he's not just killed out in an open field somewhere. The people of God at that point had so little uh, regard for God that they killed his prophet inside the temple, we're told, between the altar and the sanctuary. And the scribes and the Pharisees are going to be held responsible because with them at this dinner is the Son of God. And they are persecuting him as well. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees had a speech that they would give. And it often goes something like, if we were alive when the prophets were around, we would have listened. We would have done exactly what they told us to do. But Jesus says, no, you wouldn't. Because right now you're rejecting me, and I am better than the prophets. Sometimes we might think to ourselves, reading through the Bible and going, man, these people are giving Jesus such a hard time. I bet if I was alive during Jesus' time, I would have followed Jesus. I would have done what Jesus would have told me to do. I wouldn't have fled and run away. We remember that even Jesus' closest followers, when the time came, abandoned him. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember that it is our sin that put Jesus on the cross. Until we see the great need of us to have a Savior take away our sin, we do not yet understand Jesus. Verse 52, he goes on and gives what is the hardest thing for me as a pastor to hear. Woe to you experts in the law. You have taken away the key to knowledge. You didn't go in yourselves, and you hindered those who were trying to go in. 
You've got to think about who this expert in the law is. This is someone who would run circles around you in Bible drill, right? Not only would he know the verse you had forgotten as well as the reference, he would know the entire chapter that verse was found in and could read it off to you without even having to look at it. But what Jesus is telling him is that you have been so focused on head knowledge and not heart transformation that what you are doing is pushing people away from the kingdom of heaven instead of inviting them in. And what's worse is that the scribe does not realize he is standing outside of the gates of the kingdom as well. He's not even in himself. This hits me the hardest as a pastor. I have the best job in the world. I get to influence students and encourage them and introduce them to Jesus. It is amazing what I get to do. But I often ask myself, am I a hindrance to these students? Am I preventing them from going further in their faith with how I live my life? And if you're thinking, Ronald, you're a pastor. You ought not have to worry about that. I appreciate your concern, but I would much rather you point it inward at yourself. If you're thinking this, these are Pharisees and scribes. They intentionally were trying to bring people into the kingdom of heaven. But what Jesus is telling them is that they are having the opposite effect. They're being hypocrites. That's why I have to examine my heart. That's why we all have to examine our hearts. Because we can be just like them. Because look at their reaction. Verse 53. When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to oppose him fiercely and to cross-examine him about many things. They were lying in wait for him to trap him in something that he said. One way to spot a religious hypocrite is when they are confronted with the truth, when the truth is put out in front of them and saying, this is how you're living your life and it's wrong, they get defensive and they say, I'm not wrong, you're wrong. Instead of going, let me think on this and let me consider what you've said. If Jesus is the one who looks like the crazy person, these two guys are off the hook. Because remember who we're dealing with here. You have one guy who's a Pharisee. He's a religious leader. He's a respected person in the community. And from the outside, he looks good. He even does all the right things. The other's an expert in the law. He has Bible verses upon Bible verses memorized. And he can tell you who was the son of the guy in the Old Testament. He knows exactly where it's found, too. These two guys look religious and they sound religious. But Jesus is telling them their focus is wrong. One is valuing religious activity over actual heart transformation. While the other is valuing head knowledge rather than a lifestyle that's been changed by the truth that he knows. 
Brothers and sisters, let's not miss this because this is a trap we can fall into. That might mean that you are someone who has been around church for a long time. You are someone who has been around Christianity for a long time. You know the verses. You know what you need to do to look all right and seem like this is where you are supposed to be. When in reality, what's going on on the inside is that there is a dead heart instead of a living one. Friends, if that is you today, I want you to take courage and remember something. The same Jesus who is accusing these Pharisee and scribe as being religious hypocrites is the same Jesus who died for them. He wants their hearts to be changed. He wants their hearts to become alive. And he wants the same for you too. If you look at your heart and you see that on the inside, instead of a living, breathing, active heart that is alive for God, it is a dead one that only is concerned with the outside appearance, I pray that you would see that that is because of the sin in your life, the sin that has kept you from God, kept you from believing in Him. And I pray that today would be the day that you know you cannot live a perfect life. And so Jesus came to live it for you. And you cannot satisfy the wrath of God by yourself dying, but Jesus could by going to the cross in my place and in your place. And that to prove that he was everything he said he was and that our sins were forgiven, Jesus rose again on the third day to to show us that we have a future and we have a hope. And I pray that you would put your trust in that Jesus today. Or maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you know that Jesus has transformed your heart. But even though it's alive, it's become hard. And you found yourself focusing only on the externals. You found yourself focusing only on what's being seen. I pray that today you would do some internal investigation and you would look at your heart and you would ask and plead with God. Ask Him to make those parts that are hard inside of you soft again so that you can serve Him. And instead of pushing people away from the kingdom, that you would begin to start drawing them in with you as well. Even though we spend an odd amount of time picking out a casket for a funeral, the reason we do this is because we serve a God who makes dead things come alive. We serve a God who is in the business of making dead hearts beat We serve a God who will one day raise all who have fallen asleep in him again so that we can be with him in the kingdom. And I pray that if you are here today and you are unsure if you have a living, breathing heart, that today would be the day you ask God to make your heart alive.
Would you please pray with me? Our Father and our God, we can so easily fall into the same traps as the Pharisee and the scribe. God, we can think that we've got it all together when in reality, we need you, Father. Lord, I pray for myself as well as others that we would seek to look at our hearts. God, help us not be like the religious hypocrites who when we are confronted with truth, we reject it and get defensive and say, no, that's not me. But Lord, help us to repent and turn around and run to you because that is what you want for us, God. Lord, be with us. Those who have hardness in our hearts, God, would you soften it so that we might care more about what is in the heart of a person than on the outside. Father God, we love you. And we thank you for all you have done for us. But especially, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Because it is through him and by him we are saved and our dead hearts come alive. It is in the name of Jesus I ask these things. Amen.